Today's reading is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And today, we're beginning a six-week series on hearing our call to go and do likewise. What it means to hear and obey Jesus' call to neighborly love. Now, in one sense, neighborly love is pretty simple and straightforward, right? It's the bringing a bowl of soup over to a friend who happens to be sick or just respecting quiet hours and so as not disrupt, disrupting your neighborhood or your loft uh, neighbors. It could be as simple as volunteering at the kitchen staff at Kansas City Rescue Mission. All of these things are really good. But what about the neighbor who's in his mid-30s? He doesn't have a job and he, he's been looking for a job for over a year now and he feels like his life is on hold. He feels like he can't propose to his girlfriend until... He gets his finances together. What about the neighbor who's a recent college graduate and she's buried in student debt, working multiple part-time jobs because there's no jobs available in her area of training? What about, what about the neighbor who has a prison record? So every time he fills out an application for a job, an employer doesn't look at his resume twice. What about the neighbor whose parents want to send their children to solid education but don't know how they're going to be able to afford it? What about the neighbor who's a retired senior citizen who lives in constant fear that she might outlive her retirement resources? What about the neighbor who just signed a new lease on her apartment and her business downsized and her hours were decreased and she lives in constant fear as to how she's going to now pay her ever-present bills? What about the neighbor who's a business leader who works 75 hours a week and he goes home feeling trapped, exhausted, 
fearing that if he slows down, he'll be let go. In those situations, we need more than just giving someone a bowl of soup. And as a pastor, I've had more conversations, entered into more prayer around these types of scenarios, and I oftentimes feel helpless in loving my neighbor. You see, every morning we wake up and we open our eyes to a complex economic world. Let me give you an example. The very health of the American dollar and the slightest twinge can either mean the downsizing or the expansion of global massive corporations or even the local small business. This type of financial insecurity is littered within the conversations of people's hopes and dreams that I have conversations with when we're having coffee together. Or what do we use to assess politicians so often is the promises they make to improve the economy. How many jobs will you create? Because far too often the question is less, does my work matter? Although that's an important question. But more more often it's, do I have work to do today? And will I have work to do tomorrow? Does the Bible talk anything about this particular realm of economics or Should we just trust the Wall Street Journal for our Monday economics and the Bible for our Sunday services? Should we just continue to keep the Sunday to Monday gap when it comes to how we see the interwoving relationships of our daily economic lives? Well, I think that Jesus talked a lot about work, about money, about economics. I mean, he was born in a marginalized family. He knew that the slightest twinge in the economic framework meant drastic changes, especially for the poor. He spent most of his life as a craftsman carpenter, and when he spoke to the masses, where did we find him most often but in the marketplace? And so when we come to the parables of Jesus, these stories... We so often hear them first through our pietistic lens as if Jesus is just calling us to be nicer people. And that's important. We don't need to be nasty. Don't get me wrong. But what if Jesus is equipping us with even more tools in order to show neighborly love? What if Jesus has just as much to say about economic flourishing as he does spiritual flourishing? And what if they are more intertwined than we care to admit? Well, this morning, we're going to begin this six-week journey in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10, where someone asks Jesus a question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells his answer in a story. And he does more than just give us the who, but he also gives us guidance in the how. And so this morning, we're going to find out that loving your neighbor is expanding your capacity for your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is expanding your capacity for your neighbor. And we're going to see that by walking through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, answering three questions, okay? So these will be kind of our hangers as we're walking through the text. What does God want? Who is your neighbor? And how do you love your neighbor? What does God want? Who is your neighbor? And how do you love your neighbor? So first, what does God want? This is kind of how the whole conversation with Jesus and this Old Testament expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, began. He came up to Jesus and said, hey, teach. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what does God want from me? And Jesus responds like most wise rabbis would, responding to a question with a question. Well, what does the law say? In other words, what has God said to us in Scripture that He wants? 
Well, the Old Testament expert responds with the Sunday school answer by quoting pretty much from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, you can almost imagine, smiles and affirms the Old Testament expert as a way of saying, you knew the answer to that question, and everybody in the crowd knew that you knew the answer to that question, which should raise a red flag for us as readers. Because whenever you ask a question you know the answer to, one of two things is true. Either you're hoping and praying he gives you a different answer, (laughs) and you've been wrong your whole life, or you're up to something a little sneaky. (laughs) You know, you've been to those Q&As where somebody asks a question where they know the answer, and when they get the answer, it was really just to build their base to ask their real question, to bring in the zinger. Well, in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, Luke reveals what's going on underneath the surface of this question, where he writes, but he, the Old Testament expert, desiring to justify himself, then said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, What is Luke saying when he's saying this man was trying to justify himself? Here's a helpful tip whenever you're reading scripture. If you come to a point and you have a question, oftentimes other passages of scripture bring clarity to places where we have questions. And if you go just six chapters later in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus calls out a group of religious leaders for doing the exact same thing. The Pharisees were ridiculing Jesus' teaching about all things, above all things, money. Not because Jesus' teaching was off point, but because the Pharisees were greedy and they felt confronted. They felt convicted. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 16, 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. When you try to justify yourself, you're trying to look good in an area that you aren't good. You're trying to play a part in which you've never been written into the script, okay? And what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the age-old issue of hypocrisy. And instead of desiring to change and so align their heart's desires with God's desires, they seek to justify themselves and be right in their greed. With that framework in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 10. And we see this Old Testament expert, is one, he wants to look good without being good. He, he could care less about what God wants and how to love his neighbor He just wants eternal life and he wants it on his terms, which, mind you, never works out well. So who's my neighbor exactly? (laughs) Whenever we ask that question, it comes with an underlying assumption that there's actually someone out there who isn't your neighbor. It comes with the underlying assumption that there is someone out there who is not deserving of your neighborly love. So what does God want? to love him first and foremost. And so let that love now inform our neighborly love to those who are around us. Now, the question is out there though. So let's see how Jesus answers, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I'll tell you what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't draw a line in the sand and begin to draw up the axes and allies of neighborly love. Instead, he tells a story 
A story I'm sure many of us in here have heard multiple times, but let me recount it for our time together. A story of a Jewish man who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and somewhere in the 17 miles, he's confronted by a group of thieves who mug him and leave him half naked and in the desert sand in the Middle East. But there's a little glimmer of hope because the heroes, the priest, shows up. And instead of actually lending a hand and so caring for his fellow Jewish brother, he goes to the other side of the road and he had his reasons and I'm sure he thought they were really good reasons, but he just kept walking. But then there's another potential hero, the Levite. He works in the temple. He's normally the voice for the voiceless. He knows what it means to epitomize God's law, of course. But he follows the priest's lead and he goes to the other side of the road and keeps walking. And then there's the Samaritan. The Samaritan was despised racially and religiously by first century Jews. And of course, every Jewish listener at that point is thinking, okay, there must be a fourth guy coming. (laughs) Because it couldn't be this guy, but instead the surprise happens and Jesus reveals that it's the Samaritan, not the religious leaders, but the Samaritan businessman who's on his way to a thriving economic center of Jericho at that time. And he stops and he looks upon this half-dead man and he has what? Compassion. Compassion. The contrast between religious hypocrisy and compassion, I think it's riveting no matter how many times I've read through this story. It stares you right in the face. And I want you to think about this. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all saw the same thing. Except that the Samaritan saw this young man through the lens of God's love, knowing that there is no neighbor that is unworthy of his love, his time, his inconvenience. And right at the center is that word compassion. Now, the word compassion is more than sympathy for someone. It's better described as empathy. You don't see someone and then feel sorry for them. When you see that person in need, you see yourself in them such that if you were to walk by without doing anything, it's as if you've left a piece of you behind. So who's your neighbor? Jesus is basically saying everyone. That person, the last person on the planet that you would ever hope to be your neighbor, that's your neighbor. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe someone who drives you nuts at work. Maybe it's someone who's different from you religiously, racially, ethnically. Maybe they're a Mizzou fan, (laughs) a K-State fan, a Jayhawk, right? Just got real for some of you. Maybe there's actually someone within your biological family that you have a difficulty seeing them as your neighbor. And in one sense, all of this up to this point is the part of the story that we know well. I don't necessarily think we live it well. We need to hear this story more often than we think we do. There's a lot that continues to challenge our underlying racial biases and and our class system and so much of the way we see and structure our lives. We need to understand that far too often we're just like this guy who's been building our case to the real question, who exactly is my neighbor? So as to justify people we don't have to actually have relations with and so show love towards But there's a second contrast that we far too often miss. A second contrast that comes in the answer to the question that Jesus answers, or comes to the the answer to the question that no one's asked, is how do you love your neighbor? 
You see, good teachers, they not only answer questions with questions and so pull the answer out of you, they not only give stories to questions so that they invite you into the joy of discovery, but good teachers answer questions that the class doesn't even know they're asking yet. How do you love your neighbor? Look with me at the end of our passage this morning in verses 36 through 37 where Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The Old Testament expert said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. You got it? Good. Now get on with it. Don't just think about it. Don't just feel really good in the moment. Go and do something because love is action. Mercy is action. Now. And we begin to get a glimpse of this second contrast. The first contrast, as a way of review, is the Levite and the priest and the religious hypocrisy in contrast to the Samaritan and his genuine compassion. But the second contrast is between the inflicted economic injustice of the thieves and the economic healing that's provided by the Samaritan. It's here we begin to see how Jesus answers the question, how do you love your neighbor? So how? How do you love your neighbor? Two crucial words, compassion and capacity. Compassion and capacity. So compassion, we've already pressed into that a little bit earlier. This is the space where we not only feel bad for somebody, but we see ourselves in that someone, that other such that it moves us to action. It's something deep within our bones that we can't remain motionless. But we can't stop there. We actually actually need the capacity to do something. You know, oftentimes the gap between compassion and action is capacity, whether legitimate or perceived. And this is where we start to see that loving your neighbor is expanding your capacity for your neighbor. I mean, how did the Samaritan love the man? He didn't just apply first aid and leave it at that. What does he do? He brings him to the hotel. He pulls out his visa card and says, I'm going to pay for him to stay there for the next couple weeks. And anything on top of that, I'll pay for that too. That takes some margin, some financial capacity. The second contrast of economic injustice of the thieves and the economic healing of the Samaritan. This one scholar, Kenneth Bailey, who specializes in Middle Eastern studies and Jesus' parables, he highlights how the parables actually bookended with economics. The first scene is the robbers take all the man's possessions. And in scene seven, the Samaritan pays for the man out of his own resources because the man has nothing economics right here and Jesus is making a pretty critical claim in this story that we often miss here it is compassion requires capacity compassion requires capacity because your compassion can only go as far as your capacity oh sure you can have sympathy this world over but compassion that's actual action can only go so far as your capacity allows whether it be emotional or financial The Samaritan, he not only has sympathy for the abused man, but he has compassion that leads him to action through diligent work and wise stewardship and had the capacity to now honor and restore this man. This is a great example where the best workers make the best neighbors. 
The best workers make the best neighbors. And look, this concept, it isn't lost on the Apostle Paul. When writing to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, uh, 28, it's almost as if Paul is doing a midrash, a summary, as rabbis would, of this parable. Chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, Paul knows that the gospel touches every square inch of our lives, that the gospel compels us to do honest work, that the gospel compels us to actually pursue an honest profit so that we might have an abundance to share with those in need. It's this type of economic capacity that we're called to cultivate and not just look at ourselves and pay our bills, but pursue the other and to develop an economic capacity to care for those who find themselves in distress or pain. It's the gospel that calls us to honor God by adding value to our communities. And for some of you, I've used the word economics way too many times in a paragraph, and your eyes are starting to glass over as if this was microeconomics from college. (laughs) I loved that class. Sorry, I'm one of those nerds. Supply and demand curves get my heart racing. But we can't ignore this regardless of your desire if you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, Gabe, but you don't understand. I'm having difficulty enough just paying my bills. How are you talking to me about cultivating capacity? I get it. I really do. And we're going to be spending some more time in the weeks to come on how we do this individually in our own budgets and lifestyle. Because oftentimes when our income increases, our lifestyle creeps, and slowly our lifestyle fits into a new capacity, and our generosity stays the same. But I want you to also know that if you live in this country, you are comparably more wealthy than the majority of people who live on this planet. People who could cultivate so much capacity, who live on so much less so that they might care for others in their community. Each one of us in this room is comparatively extremely wealthy. And we can't lose sight of our global situation on who we are as Westerners within the United States and our capacity as individuals in the state that we find ourselves. And sure, there are different levels of capacity even in this room. Some can cultivate enough capacity to pay for the bandages. Others can cultivate enough capacity to help rent the hotel room, okay? There's different levels of capacity building. But regardless, loving your neighbor is expanding your capacity for your neighbor. But Gabe, I don't, I don't get paid for my job, for my area of contribution. How am I supposed to build capacity? Before I can keep going down some of these pushbacks, I want, to, I want us to watch a short video of someone who wrestled through these same issues and came out the other side. Let's watch together. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers.
Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary. Someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. I always had an act for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. just a florist. Capacity looks different depending on your time and your talent and your treasure, of course. But compassion always requires capacity. Always. You see, capacity, it includes money, but it's not exclusively money. And just a couple weekends ago at our Common Good Conference, Stan Archie, the senior pastor of our sister church, Christian Fellowship, said this, we need to understand the economy as engaging our influence, authority, and resources in the community. And all of us in here have those within ourselves and even more dynamically together as a community of faith. And loving your neighbor is first and foremost knowing the resources you have to give, and so growing the capacity of those to help show and shower love towards our neighbors. So with that, let's talk real practically on how we can grow in loving our neighbor. Three next steps, okay? The first is to get to know your neighbor. Get to know your neighbor and start with those who are most proximate. Start with those who are most proximate. Think of your family, your parents, your siblings, your children. Think of how you've been called to now neighborly love in those relationships. Then think about your loft neighbors, the person who lives in the house next door to you. Maybe the person who works in the cubicle next to yours. Who are those who are most proximate? Ask questions. Be ready and willing to listen. And when they ask questions of you, share yourself with them. But we can't stop there because we sit within a history. And we sit within a city that has been cultivated with history. Strategically divided by racial lines by those in power. Such that oftentimes our neighbors look a lot like us. And so if we're going to truly pursue to love our neighbors and to do so holistically, we must be just as strategic in cultivating friendships with the other, those who come from a different racial or ethnic background, and so begin to break down some of those age-old historical unjust barriers in our city. So get to know your neighbors. 
Secondly, we need to be prepared to learn to help. Learn how to help your neighbor. Learn how to help your neighbor. Now, I don't want to be so myopic as to say that throwing money at a situation or constantly pursuing relief efforts is the sum total of what it means to now neighborly love. Instead, helping our neighbor oftentimes means cultivating economic capacity in the neighborhood, helping create jobs where there weren't any, helping build a tax base so that we might support school systems and other public benefits. These are really important to neighborly love, and we oftentimes don't talk about them. There's a big warning, though, for those of us in this room that aren't materially impoverished. And that's if we just throw money at something, we can fix it. Because it works in so many other of our issues or inconveniences in our life. But there are plenty of times where actually giving money hurts more than it helps. I remember when I was talking with Tate Williams, who works with one of our partners, Global Orphan Project, and they got their start as an organization building orphanages in Haiti. Really good work, right? Well, they built some of the most beautiful orphanages. They were extremely luxurious. I mean, who wants to skimp on orphans? That doesn't feel very right, does it? Now, an unintended consequence, though, was that women and intact families who were able and willing to keep their children felt like that their children were now disadvantaged because they weren't orphans. The orphanages provided such amazing education, uh, clothing, and nutrition that parents thought they were being selfish keeping their kids and that they were now orphans became the celebrities in the community. They were eroding the family structure unintentionally. So what did they do in response? Because they can't change the whole structure at that time period. They did what seems unthinkable, almost feels wrong. They downgraded the orphanages and put it on the same economic advantage and privilege as healthy families in the community so that orphans weren't the celebrities but now were cared for similarly so that families didn't feel like they were keeping their kids from advantages by holding them in their home. That's an example of throwing more money at a situation can actually hurt a whole community. And how you have to not just come with good intentions but good thought when you come with compassion and capacity. And we have to learn how to do that. And that's what we're going to be walking through together over these next six weeks when we're called to neighborly love. It is more complex and a very progressive and an opportunity, you know, in our economy to go up and down the ladder. This is is a unique period in time with so much wealth in the hands of so few. But one more step for this morning that may not necessarily change what you do, but how you do it. And here's this, work with your neighbor in mind. Work with your neighbor in mind. So often we work for the paycheck or we work for the weekend or we work for that new plasma TV or whatever the newest one is, you know. Instead, work with your neighbor in mind. Sure, there's the obvious moment in this story that we we miss of the innkeeper who does good work well done and so provides a space for this beaten up gentleman to now recover. But there's also the Samaritan who worked hard, who raised resources, built economic capacity that he could now extend out of his margins to care for the vulnerable. 
It's not by accident that when Jesus holds up an example of someone who's showing neighborly love, it's actually not the wealthier priest and Levite. They would have had generational wealth, but it's the Samaritan businessman, the someone that we can relate with that's a lot like us. You know, and while capacity building, like we said, and generosity can come in various facets, I want to zero in where Jesus zeroes in on this particular story where he tackles love and compassion be expressed with money, okay? Which always makes everybody feel really good when they're in church. So let me ask you this morning, have you created the economic capacity to help your neighbor? Have you created the economic capacity within your budget to help your neighbor? Do you have money that you're able to give away? Are you working at a life and a a level such that you have margin for generosity for the vulnerable in your life? And look, I'm not talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It could be tens of dollars. I mean, even, you know, when Jesus seeks to affirm generosity, where does he go when he's in the temple and the widow gives but a mite? He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Take that back, okay? You you shouldn't be giving this. No, what he says is, look at what a wonderful example of generosity where she pursues and sows to give but a portion. It's not about the comparison of how many zeros. It's a matter that you are setting aside capacity to be generous. And then let me ask you a question. If you were in the Samaritan's place, would you actually be this generous? If you were in that Samaritan's place, would you actually give generously? And that's a tough question to answer. Don't jump right away. Would you give a couple days of your vacation away? Would you open your hand or would you hold tightly to your visa card and then walk on the other side of the street? Anyone else overwhelmed? (laughs) Right? No one in here is now asking the question, who exactly is my neighbor? No one's asking that in their hearts. No one's actually assessing what their level of generosity is, right? I mean, when I read this passage again, specifically thinking about the economic network that underlies this parable, it hit me hard, but I'm sure you've got that figured out, you know, in your own life. When Jesus told this story, it was meant to reveal personal idols that we so easily justify. It was meant to reveal communal and economic brokenness, sin and selfishness we like to keep close and give our excuses. I hate it, but I see this in me. Don't justify it. Admit it and surrender it. But this story is also full of beauty and hope. You know, Jesus ends the parable with this man in the hotel being cared for, but I can't help but imagine, and I know this is a parable, but I can't help but imagine weeks later potentially when he's finally fully healed and he wakes up and he realizes where he is. His bills have been paid. He's been given a second chance on life. I can't help but imagine his viewpoint of Samaritan is going to be very different. I can't help but his, his understanding of economic capacity He'll never be able to walk by someone who's disenfranchised, who's vulnerable, who's been beaten or abused ever again in the same way. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is more than a parable. This is our story. 
because someone better than the Samaritan came along and found us half dead and put us up for a night. Instead, Jesus Christ found us when we were dead and without hope and gave us life. And he gave us this economic and actually spiritual capacity in him. And so when Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, had the capacity in himself to now pay our cosmic death of sin against a holy God, he did so out of the generous nature of who he is. And it's only from this starting point, realizing just how poor, how helpless, and how far God in Christ has gone to now care for us, his enemies, will we ever be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself without hurting them and so hurting yourself? Loving your neighbor is expanding your capacity for your neighbor. Let's go and do likewise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this familiar parable. I mean, I just was reading the paper the other day and read about a good Samaritan story. We, we have this language. But I know in my own life, and I fear for us as a community, that we have not yet just tapped the surface of what it means to engage in neighborly love. God, may you give us a desire to go deeper, to go below the surface and so just assuaging our guilt, but legitimately caring for the genuine needs in our community and for our neighbors and even our global neighbors. God, this is going to take the work of the Spirit. Convict our hearts how so often we justify our own greed. Guide us in building capacity for our neighbors. God, we need your help. We believe, help our unbelief that so often undergirds our lack of generosity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.